Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. All right. Well, good to see you all this morning. We're making our way through Genesis. You guys are going to think this is some grand conspiracy with genealogies because we've got Genesis 36, and it's a chapter full of genealogy. Y'all were excited, I think almost excited as I was, to finish Ezra and Nehemiah and those genealogies. And I've teased you about jumping into Chronicles where we get nine chapters of names. Uh, we will start Matthew, so we've got one big group of names that starts that book. We'll talk about that when we get there. But Genesis 36 this morning, and it's, it's a list of Esau's descendants. And so that brings up a question for us to think about as we read, why are genealogies so important, right? Why do they keep coming up in all of these different places in Scripture? Sometimes we get really brief genealogies, like somebody will introduce themselves, and they'll introduce themselves with three or four generations of their relationships. And that I think we can relate to. We get some of that around here, right? Where are you from? Who's your father? Who's your grandfather? But it's a bit much to get a whole, whole chapter. So why, why genealogies? And then as we're making our way into Genesis 36, we're not concerned with Esau, I wouldn't think. So why this one? Why do we get so much information about this guy? Why this genealogy? So, so let's read, and, uh, and then we'll talk about it as we go. Another thing to watch for, actually, as we read, watch for the extra information. Because we think of genealogies in terms of names. And there are a couple ways that can go. One is if so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Or we could run that backwards. So-and-so was the son of, was the son of, was where we're running back. But we can also run it in a kind of a pyramid. Like Esau had these sons. Each of these sons had these sons. And sometimes it's narrated that way. So, so pay attention to what kind of genealogy we have as we read how it's structured. Think about why we would be interested in Esau. Why do we need so much information about him? And where are the places we get extra information along the way? And how does that offer us clues to why Moses bothered to include this information? All right, let's pray. And then we'll read chapter 36. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the rain that we had this week. We continue to ask that you would send more. We thank you for your blessing and your loving, watchful care over us and over our families. Father, we pray that this morning you would draw us into your presence in worship, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would continue to watch over us this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Bazamath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebaioth. 
And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basimath bore Ruel. And Oholobama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. Excuse me. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatim, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nathan, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. The chiefs Taman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatim, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son. The chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom. And these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, sorry, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Oholabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zaavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites. The chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Denhabah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrakah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. 
Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Metred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Oholabama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Taman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. All right. What do you notice? Starts off naming a lot of females, and that's not very typical. Good. Yeah, that's highly unusual. Yeah. The mothers of the Edomites, so to speak, are named in some detail. That is, that's very, very unusual. We've heard about the wife, uh, wives and concubines of the patriarchs, and we heard about Dinah as a daughter, but we've seen very little of the women of Israel so far, even. Very specific as to whether they were wives or concubines. Yes. Why might that be? Inheritance. Yes. We've seen a lot of mention of women distinguishing wives versus concubines. Inheritance is part of that. What else do we notice? Naming of the chiefs. Chiefs and kings, both, right? And are there few or many? Many. Yeah, there's a whole lot of them named. How does that compare to the family of God as we've been tracing them up to this point? Not a trick question. So, I mean, it's out of the normal. I mean, there haven't been as many, I mean, in this one chapter. It named seven or eight. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we met Abraham. Yeah, very short reign. Yeah, so and it may be that we've kind of hit pause on the history of the family of Abraham, and given a much right a condensed description of a much longer time period for Edom, right? So this may stretch well into the time between Genesis and Exodus, so to speak, but that still raises questions. Why would it be placed here? And why do we have all of these chiefs and kings? I mean, we've had no mention of a king among Abraham, Isaac, Jacob yet. We have had promised to them, kings will go forth from you. We haven't seen a king yet. Because God was their chief, their king, or their, you know, it's what... Based on uh, information in Samuel, 1 Samuel, that, that it was God who was going to be their king. Good. So this is a question that is going to follow us through several books of the Old Testament and even into the New. What about this distinction or difference between a human king and a divine king? Is the Lord their king? Is a human a king instead? Or does the Lord rule over them through a human king. Good. That brings to our attention, I think, a lack of something in this genealogy. If you think about earlier genealogies in Genesis, what is this one missing? If you think about the contrast between Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, for instance, Genesis 4 is the line of Cain. And in the line of Cain, we saw a lot of people we saw significant progress in human technology. We saw the building of the first city. We saw a cry of vengeance. 
But what do we see in Genesis 5 with the line through Seth? Long life. Long life and God's blessing, right? If those other things were also a part of what happened in and through that family line, that's not what the narrator chose to focus on. They focused on long life and God's blessing, and in particular, long life as a sign of God's blessing. Most of the other genealogies specify, too, whether, like, he loved God, or he praised God, or he didn't. And this has no mention whatsoever. Yeah. But here we've got... Does that come into play of some of the mention of the kings and the chiefs? Are they worshiping man, or are they worshiping God? Good. That's a really good question. Because what do we... Right, we get a little bit of information about who they are, and who they're related to, and where they settled. But we get, of course, this is Esau's family, but there's no return to the Lord anywhere among this narrative of Esau's family. Instead, there's an explicit description that he settles over against, right? Away from his brothers. And a reason is given for that. Right in verse 7, the land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. Uh, similar to when Lot splits from Abram, but in a similar fashion as well, right? When Lot departed from Abram, we saw things about Lot's character that raised questions that never was reversed or undone or deconstructed in the later history of Lot and his people until we get to the book of Ruth, because right? Ruth is a, is a Moabite. And she comes back into the family of Israel. But similarly here, we have Esau departing and not returning. And what else do you notice? Right? Where, where do Esau and his descendants' wives come from? Canaanite. The Canaanites and others. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not from the extended family, not from within their network of kinship relations, not from among people who worship the Lord, but initially from the Canaanites. And then as they move into this region that comes to be known as Edom's, first known as Seir, they intermarry with the people of the land. And so as, we, as it gives us that list of kings and some of that description in between, the sons of Seir, the Horite, that's a question to ask is why do we get this whole paragraph that it's not even Esau's descendants? It's a descendants of this foreign guy who happened to live in the area Esau comes to. Well, we get that description because the line of Esau intermingles with the line of Seir. So that what was an extended family related to Abraham and then a family of foreigners who lived in this area become one people. Right? This is what the Shechemites wanted to do to Jacob and his family. A couple chapters earlier, they wanted to absorb them into their own people. So that not only their daughters, but their possessions would become theirs. And that, that happens to Edom. So. Are they, it, it says, the son of whoever mm -hmm. from the land of wherever. Are they acquiring that area 
as well when they when they move into rain are they you know building a bigger kingdom yes so they move from i can't if i try to draw a map it'd look terrible but imagine that this is the mediterranean this is the coastline and then i'll draw a map anyway it'll still look terrible we've got the sea of galilee the river jordan and the dead sea Right, and then we've got the Central Highlands running through here. Edom is over here, and it's up on a plateau. Well, really, more here. If you remember Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, some of the last scenes were filmed in Petra, where they've got really, really narrow canyons, and then cities actually carved into the limestone. That's the area that Esau comes to occupy where Edom and Seir are. It's mountainous. It's high up on a plateau. It's very, very easily defensible. And the main trade routes from the desert come through there. So they're able to, to hold the area and defend it against people who are coming through. They're able to levy taxes and if you don't like the taxes and you try and beat them up, they can just hide in their holes and block the road and you can't get through, right? You have to go a really long way around either way. And so they become very, very wealthy and they're very difficult for any army to dislodge from the position that they take there. So that's this people that we're tracing. Esau moves over here has a whole lot of children, becomes absorbed into or possibly absorbs the people who are here so that they become one people known as the Edomites. And then they seem to embody the things that are promised to the line of Abraham. They become a great nation. Uh, kings go forth from him. He has a whole lot of people. But what's lacking in the genealogy are elements that would denote their faithfulness to the Lord. They're worshiping God. They're um, seeking refuge in the Lord. And so this highlights for the Israelites several things as Moses is telling this to them as they're on their way out of Egypt, right? It tells them who these people are because they're going to encounter them on the way. What's our relationship to these people who occupy the territory of Edom. How do we relate to them? It highlights a struggle that they are going to have, that Abraham's family already has, uh, about God's faithfulness. How do we reckon with, we are going through hard times, we are going through trial, and people who don't worship the Lord seem to be prospering. I think it's helpful to remember that this is something Scripture often deals with directly. Sometimes we wrestle with those things or friends of ours wrestle with those things. And sometimes Christians, even pastors who try and discuss that, deal very poorly with it or try to avoid talking about it. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible actually addresses that head on in books like Job, in places like Psalm 73. And here in Genesis, as it as it highlights the, the smallness of Abraham's family 
and the way that people who leave that family seem to prosper. And it will talk about that openly, draw our attention to it, but subtly undermine the idea that this is an example of God's blessing because there's, there's no mention of the Lord across that entire chapter. They've turned their back on the Lord. They seem to be prospering, but it comes to nothing. And as we, if we keep reading the Old Testament, we learn what happens to this people who seem to be a great nation. They seem to be in a place they can't be dislodged from. And yet the Lord brings judgment upon them. And there are no Edomites today. The book of um, Obadiah deals with that at length. Uh, notice one of them was named Baal. In generations run down the road, people worshipped Baal. Yes. So Baal is a tricky word. It just means husband or master. And so sometimes Baal such and such just means the Lord of that place, like the person in charge. Uh, and we see it in some Israelite names. But it also becomes someone that people worship instead of Yahweh. There are some places where it seems to be, it's, it's not polemical. And there's even uses of Baal that may be referring to the Lord. But there are other places where clearly there's a different Canaanite God in view by the use of that term. So, and sometimes they'll change people's names to reflect that. Like Ishbosheth, probably his name was something like Man of Baal, uh, but Ishbosheth means Man of Shame. Changed his name there to make fun of him. Yes, sir. The uh, it, you know it, here it says Esau is Edom. Okay, he got his nothing. No, like in case of Jacob, God said your name now will be Israel, or Abram. It was now will be Abraham. But there's no mention this way. I mean, it did just not say that here. Uh, is Edom, Esau, and Edom just uh, another, uh, uh, interchangeable names or something? So both names mean red. It's something to do with the, both have to do with the color red. So Esau seems to be the personal name that his parents gave him. But Edom seems to be the name by which the audience that Moses is telling the story to knows the people descended from him. And so at several points along the way, he'll say Esau, which is Edom, or the children of Esau, which are the Edomites, to clarify for the Israelites as he's telling the story, like Esau was his name, but, but Edom are his descendants. But he does seem to be both very hairy and red. This chapter rounds off this section of Genesis. We're going to start chapter 37 and we'll be starting a new section. Theoretically, we're still in the narrative about Jacob, but we're about to swap and we're going to tell the story of Joseph. There's this note. If you look at Genesis 37, verse 2, it starts with, these are the generations of Jacob. And this is a, a structural marker in Genesis that we've seen a few times. These are the generations of so-and-so. 
And it seems to be every time we see that what follows is actually a a narrative about their descendants. So right at the beginning of the story of Abraham, we had, these are the generations of Terah. Then we had a little genealogy and then we followed Abraham for a while. And so here we come to, these are the generations of Jacob, but it's primarily about Joseph, Joseph and his brothers, which means that Genesis 36 is something that stands in between. It actually starts the same way, right? These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. But then the whole chapter is about his descendants. So we're, we're ending this section that where we've been following Jacob and his wanderings with his family. And then this, this showdown, this confrontation between Jacob and Esau with things unsettled for Jacob. He's back in the land. He's safe from his brother. Right? His brother is not pursuing uh, any kind of interpersonal conflict with him, although he could. He clearly has the power to squash his brother. But what's going to happen to Jacob? What's going to happen to God's promises? The Lord has reaffirmed his promises to Jacob. And with Jacob, relatively speaking, we have this explosion of children, right? Instead of one or two, now we have 12 and a daughter. But what's going to happen beyond that? What will the next generation look like? What will it mean for Jacob to realize the promises to Abraham? Is Jacob going to become a prince over a great people or a specific piece of land, right? He, he buys another piece of land. So now Abraham has bought a piece of land out of the land that was promised to him by the Lord. Jacob has bought an additional piece of land, but the land promises given to Abraham are not yet fulfilled. We talked about that Abrahamic promise that we see first in Genesis 12, where God's promised to make him into a great people. He's promised his presence to go with him, blessing those who bless him and cursing those who dishonor him. And he's promised him a place that he would prepare for him, right? The whole land. In fact, when he, when he goes up on top of the mountain with Lot in Genesis 13, he says, everything you can see, from this mountaintop and more, including what Lot just picked for himself. I will give to you and your descendants. But Abraham bought a piece of land. That's the only land he ever owned in the land. Isaac clearly has a place where he's living, but we don't even know that he bought anything. Jacob has bought a piece of land. So we're, we're still waiting, right? The realization of those promises are kind of a to be continued at this point. And before we continue that story into the next generation, we get this report about Esau. Part of what we're doing is is building the tension. How is the Lord going to take care of the family of Abraham? How is he going to carry these promises forward? What does it look like for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to bring these promises to pass for their children? All right. And the, the note that we get about Jacob, as we end that, it should really probably belong with chapter 36. Because Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. What do we make of that line? There are a couple of subtle things going on in the way that's phrased. The promise is, is staying 
the promise isn't going with Esau. The line of Jacob, we're going to count as those who stood, stayed in the land. Good. Okay, that's part of it. It reminds us that although Esau is prospering and growing and has kings ruling over his descendants and has princes of Esau, that's not the line we're focused on. We're back on Jacob. And Jacob is living in the land God promised to Abraham. But there's more going on in how it's phrased as well. What else do you see? He's living there, but it's not his. Yeah. It's the land of his father's sojournings. Right? He's living in the land where his fathers dwelt as resident aliens, not citizens, not landowners. But we get on the one hand, he's in the land of promise that's been promised to him, but not yet his. It's not yet called the land of Israel. It's still the land of Canaan. And so we, we bring our focus back to the line of Jacob, but with a reminder of promises as yet unfulfilled. All right. Should we dip into chapter 37? It's 1018. Let's do it. Okay. We are about to see on full display the results of something we've noted over the last few chapters. Every time we read the stories of the patriarchs, we scratch our heads about why do they have more than one wife? And is that okay for me? Usually we don't ask that out loud. We'll get, get ourselves in trouble, right? And what about the open favoritism among their children? These guys have favorite kids and everybody in the family knows who their favorite is. How's that going to work out? And this is a chapter that serves, I think, as a good reminder that just because we see something in the Bible doesn't mean that we're meant to imitate it or that it's it's okay. Sometimes we don't even have to say that. Like no one would say except to make fun of this idea, right? Judas went out and hanged himself. Go therefore and do likewise. But oftentimes we'll read something in scripture and we'll add the go therefore and do likewise without actually doing the work of reading carefully and seeing whether we are actually meant to do what they are doing. Is it told to us because it's something that we're meant to follow the example of or, or are we just told it because it happened and it's part of what we need to know? So in this chapter, it might be a warning, not an example to follow. That we'll see across a couple of generations, the outworkings of this having multiple wives and having favorite children. All right. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. We'll go to verse 11 initially. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his father's, sorry, with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? 
So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. All right, what do you notice? He's a brat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a that is putting it very kind. Throwing it in their face that I'm the youngest, I'm the favorite. Yes. I'm seeing these visions of me being the ruler over everything. everything. Yes. Yeah. Whose fault is it that he's a brat? His father's. Yeah. So we have so embedded in our culture, especially with you know, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, this idea that you know, he's got this special robe that's got all these different colors on it. The colors are not the import of this robe. This is a robe. It's a piece of clothing. It may be multicolored. It may be long sleeved, but giving and wearing this robe designates him as the one given the right of firstborn. So it's an article of clothing that in its giving and in its wearing signals an important position in the family and the wealth and resources that will go with it. Imagine you have a very large family and the patriarch of the family picks your youngest brother and long before he dies, makes sure the whole family knows little Johnny is going to get the major portion of everything in the will. He's going to get the farmhouse. He's going to get the tractor. He's going to get the land. He's going to get the bank account. The rest of you will get what's left. That is the significance of this coat or robe that Joseph is given and then very happily wears. It's not just that it's given to him and everybody knows what it means. It's he wears it every day. I don't even know if he takes it off to wash. He rubs it into his brother's faces that he is his father's favorite and his dad lets him. And then, yeah, these dreams notice that his brothers don't need these dreams interpreted for them, right? Usually in the old Testament, someone has a dream and we need someone to interpret it. But Joseph tells them his dream is probably not, right? Even the first one mentioned is probably not the first one he's had because they immediately know what he's talking about. There's no mystery about what the dream seems to indicate. And uh, they're not very happy about it, are they? Now, do we have a king? Because we just had kings and princes in Esau. But we don't have a king or a prince among Jacob's household. But we have this dream. And the brothers associate it with the idea of rule and reign as a king. One of these verbs is, is the verb form of the word for king, right? We could rephrase their statement in or question in verse eight. Are you indeed to king over us or indeed to rule over us? So they hate him. Then he has another dream. And what's the import of the second dream? The demons, elders, <clears throat> yeah. bow down to him. Even his parents, not just his brothers. And it's not like the brothers didn't hear that dream and think, 
well, gee, that sounds pretty good. I'd rather be a star than a sheaf out in the field any day. But no, they hear again the idea of subservience and that even his father and his mother would bow down to him. Imagine you had a son who came and told you a dream like this. Hey, dad, I had a dream that you and mom and all my siblings are going to bow down to me. How would that conversation go? And how long would they be grounded? What was the significance of his age? You know, at 17 in modern culture, you know, you're becoming a man. I would venture to say at 17, five, 6,000 years ago, the development was probably, you know, he was probably a grown man at 17. Yeah. Is there a significance of naming his age there? I think... Well, he's certainly old enough to know better. Right. He is old enough that he should know better. He's old enough that he should be beginning to found his own household. He's old enough that he could potentially begin to enter into the inheritance that his father has designated him with. So it's a bit different than a seven-year-old little brother saying these things. But I think that's part of it. Part of it is that's just how old he is when these things happen. But he is actually of an age where he's on the cusp of potentially being able to realize what he's seeing in his visions and what's yeah, been, old yeah. Enough, old enough to know yeah. better. Yeah, old enough to know better, but also old enough to come into some of what he's designated with or having visions of. That's, I thank you for highlighting that because sometimes we read this and we get the idea that he's seven or eight. And he's, he's not seven or eight. He's 17. Yes, sir. It says, but his father kept this, these sayings in mind. Would that be similar to what Mary said? She, uh, I don't know if I can quote it, but uh, that, would that be something similar? Yes, sir. I just keep, uh, kept thinking about that on uh, something. I, I, I wondered why the, that statement is there, I suppose. Yes, sir. I think, I think we find that in Luke when they visit the temple and he says, he responds, right? Um, Would I not be in my father's house? Yeah, the way Luke phrases it, this is in Luke 2, verse 51. So she had just said to him, why have you treated us so? Right? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. He goes down, he's submissive to them. It says in that last piece of verse 51, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So I think both with Joseph's dream and then here with Jesus in the temple, there are things that happen in their youth that their parents don't forget about. They think there's something to this. I think the importance of it comes to mind again later. Good. That's a good connection. All right. How's this going to go? What are his brothers going to do about his special coat and about his dream and about the real danger to them that it, it could become a reality? We'll stop since it's 1030. We'll find out as we continue. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to to have it, to read it, to discuss it, to ponder it. Lord, this is, we know that this is a, a unique moment in the history of your people. Our, 
our incredible access to your word. We pray that you would stir up in our hearts a greater and greater love for your word, that we might treasure it, that we might read it, that we might think over it, that we might discuss it with others. And as we do so, we pray that you would bless our engagement with the scriptures, that we might learn more of you and of your son and of ourselves and of your ways with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.